We're going to be in James chapters 3 and 4 today. Uh, you might go ahead and open to it as we begin to talk, and when we get there, we'll already be there. But it's going to be James 3, beginning in verse 13, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 4, verse 10. So if you remember, um, there's an old story about a pastor who had a bunch of people over to his house for dinner, and as dinner was over, all the adults went to have their conversation, all the kids go to play all their games in the back, and suddenly after a while, they hear the kids like fighting, it sounds like something really vicious is going on back there, so the pastor gets up and he runs back there and he's like, what's going on, and his older son just tells him, oh, dad, don't worry, we're, we're not really fighting, we're just playing church. And while thankfully I still never see anything like that at CBC, it's kind of a bummer, isn't it, that an illustration like that even has to exist, because there's some truth to it. The children in the story knew what the adults refused to admit, and James, in today's passage, wants us to know that none of us are above struggling with that kind of stuff. In fact, he assumes that we'll all have to fight against pride and unrighteous anger and bickering plenty over the course of our life. So God means for these verses to be unsettling to us because perhaps more than any other sin, people can tend to give themselves a pass when it comes to things like pride and anger. Pride is self-deceiving by nature, and anger is the moral emotion. Ang anger says, that's not right, no fair, you shouldn't be able to do that, somebody should stop it. And likely, in many cases, somebody probably should do something. But the trouble comes when we decide that we're the ones who should hand out justice and God just needs to take his seat in the back. It's easy to excuse yourself if you only see anger as explosive or violent or intimidating. And while it's certainly those things, it's a much wider spectrum than that. Anger is going to include being irritated, impatient, annoyed, cold, callous, dismissive, harsh, sarcastic, cynical, demeaning, vengeful, self-righteous, and the list could go on. In these ways, all of us have an anger problem. No person in no church wakes up one day and decides, you know what, I think I'm just going to become characteristically angry and quarrelsome. These are things that take time. They grow like cancer until they kill the body. But saying that, I also want to say something else to you. I want to re remind you, because it's still true, that I'm still so very thankful how much I see the members of this church loving one another so very well, so very often. It's still true. God's been so good to us. I pray that we never take that for granted. Please don't. And today's passage will certainly include encouragement, but it'll also hopefully warn us and even wound us. Surgery begins with cutting. Thankfully, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So let's look at the text. James 3, beginning in verse 13, go all the way down to 4, verse 10. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. 
But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. So the author is, of course, James here, the half-brother of Jesus, who was the chief leader of the mother church in Jerusalem. He's sometimes called James the Just because uh, he gives a lot of emphasis to things like loving the helpless and preserving unity among the saints. And so when famine and persecution eventually drove a large number of Jewish Christians, mostly Jewish Christians, out of Jerusalem, into neighboring Gentile regions, James writes to them in part because he needs to address the infighting that had begun as Jewish Christians now worship next to their Gentile brothers and sisters who up until recently had been a bunch of godless heathens and pagans. And now as refugees, these Jewish Christians also were impoverished. So what also became a point of contention is that many of the local Gentile Christians were in fact wealthy, but weren't always eager to sacrifice for their very strange and needy brothers and sisters from Jerusalem. Whether it's those problems or something else, every generation and every congregation of believers will need to actively fight against division and for unity with one another. And as we'll see, the moment that we think that we would never have those kinds of problems here, that's when pride has already crept in quietly. And it's the root of discord. It takes our eyes off of Christ and it puts them on ourselves and our own desires. Not that desire in and of itself is bad, it's not, but it's how easily our desires can turn selfish that gets us into trouble. Division between believers or in a church can be very disorienting as well. One of the chief ways we know that we've passed 
from life and into death, excuse me, <laughs> death and into life, is that we love the brothers. Disunity in the church is a side entrance mechanism that Satan uses to chip away at our assurance. Some of you know just how much coming out of a bad church situation can mess with your faith. Of course, this doesn't just apply to church, though, does it? It comes home with you, too. It goes everywhere with you. Wherever people go, wherever you go, the potential for conflict will follow. So if I were to summarize everything that we're going to say today, you can see in your bulletin there on the back, it might sound something like this. God's grace and our union with Christ is what empowers us to humbly love one another and repent of prideful animosity. And you'll see there are six movements here. I'm, again, indebted so this last time to Sinclair Ferguson for this description of Christ as the great physician and how he's working through James to get to the hearts of other believers. So in 3, 13 through 18, we'll see that he gives us a health lesson, a spiritual one. In the first verse of 4, a symptom assessment. In 2 and 3 of that chapter, a pathology report. In 4 and 5, a diagnosis. In 6 through 9, a prescription. And in 10, a prognosis. So James is going to take our spiritual x-ray and give us spiritual heart surgery or something like that. He's going to wound us. He's going to cut us open in order to see us be spiritually healed and healthy. So, in 3, 13 through 18... We get that health lesson after warning his readers about the serious dangers of the human tongue. James gives us a comparative lesson on spiritual health so that we'll grasp everything that follows. In short, spiritual health looks like, verse 13, showing our faith in the meekness of wisdom. And in verse 14, James contrasts that healthy diet of heavenly wisdom with a disordered and a deadly diet of worldly jealousy and selfish ambition. So we can start by asking, where are you getting your spiritual sustenance? What is your heart consuming on a regular basis? We must choose daily between the good and perfect gift of wise humility that comes down to us from the Father or the kind of pride that comes from below and from within. The kind that turns us in on ourselves rather than up to God and out to others. Look at how James describes this lower wisdom. In verse 15, he says, It's earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic. In other words, from bad to worse to downright scary. It's characteristic of this dying world, of these lower things, and whatever is spiritual about it is spiritual darkness. So what do most people think about immediately when they think about demonic things? If you remember from last time, it's that spooky stuff, right? Witchcraft, satanic cults, exorcisms, vaccines. Just kidding. That was a Denton joke. <laughs> stuff like that. See, Denton humor. We got it. I got a laugh out of you. Awesome. But consider for a moment Ephesians 4, 26. Be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. If that's true, and it is, likely the most demonic thing that 
the Bible says you and I are going to run into on a regular basis isn't that spooky stuff. It's the everyday kinds of selfish anger and envy that we excuse within ourselves at the suggestion of unseen demonic forces. That should be far scarier to us than trick-or-treating, Harry Potter, fairy novels, ladies' book group. I know what you're reading. And again, all you Dungeons and Dragons fans, see you in the back, Clint. <laughs> Whatever, any of that stuff. It's these matters of the heart in verse 16, jealousy and selfish ambition, that will poison your soul and create disorder in every vile practice among us. That is what will sink faithful churches and friendships and families into deadly hostility. But wisdom from God, that produces meekness, which is the polar opposite of these lower things. And while the world may not always be able to discern the difference, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is humility in action. It's a kind of gentleness and bearing with others despite their sins and their struggles that only can come from a person who knows their constant neediness of grace. And that humility moves us to be peacemakers in light of the ill-merited blessing that we've been so mercifully granted in Christ. It teaches us to love peace, and whenever possible, because there are occasions when it's not, we're going to make peace. Cultivate it, pursue it actively with others, especially other Christians, and even more especially the members of this church. It means, verse 17, that growing in wisdom will make us gentle, open to reason, full, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Proverbs 19, 11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. What this doesn't mean is that we should be peacekeepers rather than peacemakers. What's the difference? You might be tempted to say to yourself, well, I don't rock the boat, and I don't get in arguments with other people. I keep to myself. Is that really what it means to make peace? Is your mild-mannered disposition also a temptation to prevent peace sometimes, whether you mean that or not? Peacekeepers tend to run anxious circles around others just trying to make sure that nobody gets upset. They avoid, and they merely pacify. They live for the ceasefire, not the end of the war. They please people rather than God, which is ultimately done to please themselves. And that, brothers and sisters, is in fact selfish, even if it comes in a quieter package. And I'm guilty of this. I'm the first one in line to say I'm guilty of that. But peacemakers, verse 18, they actively sow peace and humility, and therefore they reap the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And they do this out of an understanding that Christ loved them, and when they were still enemies, he died for them. Therefore, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll 
be called sons of God. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. So based on verses 13 through 18, ask yourself a question. Are you wise? Are you wise? Not by your own definition, by that definition. Reverence for the Lord we know to be the beginning of wisdom. But pride goes before destruction. You may know all the theology, which no you don't, but if you aren't meek, if you aren't gentle, if you aren't peaceable, then you are not wise. Period. But wisdom is also, verse 14, not false to the truth. Wise people also aren't practical at the expense of theological fitness. Hopefully you've noticed good theology is what motivates a love for meekness and peace in us. Both are necessary. Truth and love are inseparable. And so Paul warns us, doesn't he? Never be wise in your own sight. And take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall. So next, when we see in verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1 here, we see this symptom assessment. Here's the central diagnostic question. Assuming we need to hear it, James asks this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It's a good question. You'll notice that there's only one answer to that question. Only one. And this is it. That your passions are at war within you. His symptom assessment here is that you're diseased with warring passions that are inside of you that is in your heart. It doesn't mean that all disagreement is, or debate is sinful. That would make Jesus a sinner. So that's not what, we, what he can mean. And it doesn't mean that you can't get excited about anything or have anything that you enjoy or desire. But passions here refers to when our desires become selfish and therefore cause these warlike conflicts between us. I used this illustration last time. Um, I watched my grandmother slowly die from Alzheimer's disorder for about 15 years. Um, and you know that people who suffer from this condition kind of slowly lose that filter that previously kept some of that stuff inside that nobody wants you to see or find out about. And before long, to some degree, you likely get a bit of a glimpse into what was truly cultivated in them over the course of their life. These things will start to come out. Things God always knew about. And sometimes it can be really disturbing to watch that, especially if these are your loved ones. But I'll never forget that when I was dating my wife and into our early marriage, her maternal grandmother was in a similar situation. She had dementia and she'd had a, a number of strokes. And so she was going downhill pretty quick. She was an educator. She was a woman that was known especially for how kind she was. And despite often having to endure unkindness, I remember Allie telling me how her mom had noticed something towards the end of her life. Though her grandmother had lost most of her memories by the end, she leaked Bible. Even when she couldn't speak anymore, she would mouth words to hymns that people were singing in the room with her. 
when nothing else was there, and she couldn't remember anything, what came out? She sang and she spoke about Jesus. That's the kind of testimony that doesn't happen by accident. You cultivate that. I never got the chance to know her very well. And of course, she certainly was a sinner just as much as any of us were, are. But I guarantee you that she was not a quarrelsome woman. And she was rich for that. Look now at verses 2 and 3, where James is going to give us that spiritual pathology report. He says that these selfish desires, coveting, and also sick prayer lives produce murder, fighting, and quarreling. When we, verse 2, sinfully desire and covet and don't get what we want, we fight and we quarrel. James calls that murder. And he says that because who else said it? Jesus did. While explaining the full intention of the sixth commandment, Jesus says, do not murder doesn't simply mean that you shouldn't unlawfully take the life of another person. It also means that you shouldn't even be unrighteously angry at all in any way in your heart toward another person. But instead, you should be doing good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. You're to love your enemies. You're to pray for those who persecute you. That's hard, supernaturally so. And given the beginning of chapter 3 in James about the dangers of the human tongue, James is primarily referring here to the murderous anger that we have when we use our words. So it's no wonder that when our words to each other are a problem, they're also a problem in our relationship with God. James tells us that when our passions get the best of us, we've developed a prayer problem. We've stopped asking for the things that we want from God. Ask and you'll receive, and your joy will be full, Jesus said. Ask anything in his name, he says. That is according to God's will, not yours. And you'll have it. How do we know what his will is? It should be an easy answer. It's because he's given it to us in his word. We don't have to make it any more complicated than that. Jesus' name is not a magic word or some kind of Christian spell that turns God into a cosmic vending machine or some kind of fortune teller. It's not how that works. And so we find out it's not only that we refuse to ask from God, but that even when we do, we, verse 3, ask with wrong motives. We seek what we want according to our will and feel entitled to have it. Our prayerlessness and poorly motivated appeals to God reveal a sick heart that needs cleansing and purification. So, what does God do with sick-hearted, murderous, covetous, selfish, quarrelsome kids like us? Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father who is in heaven 
give good things to those who ask him. What kind of gifts does a perfect father give to his children? Good and perfect ones. Which of you would give your kids ice cream for breakfast? Just because they ask for it, demand it even. Of course you wouldn't. You know that that's not what they need. And if they threw a fit about it and they stormed the freezer and in a rage began to fight over it, you'd be a cruel and you'd be a foolish parent to not stop that. What an amazing grace then that God kindly keeps us from our idols and gently disciplines us in our selfish pursuits. Remember this the next time you lash out in anger at your spouse or your children because you want convenience or even a comfortable evening. Now, nobody here struggles with that one, especially me. While every request made to God that gets refused or delayed isn't necessarily selfish or wrong to ask for, it's also worth remembering that God doesn't seem to answer our prayers the way we want him to sometimes, and that's not always a bad thing. Because he's looking after you. He knows what's good for you. You don't. So, in verses 4 and 5, James is going to give us his diagnosis, the problem beneath the symptoms. These two verses are a good example of what James says earlier in chapter 2, that whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point of it has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, don't murder. So in verse 4, using the seventh commandment against adultery, or as Jesus tells us, lustful intent, James makes a statement about our covetous idolatry. Or we might say our spiritual adultery against God. And this, he gets to the bottom of our spiritual illness, doesn't he? He puts a name, a diagnostic label on it. We're sick with a divided heart. We think we can have treasure in heaven and still love earthly treasure too. We want to be married to this world and to the next one. For God to share us with our idols. In so doing, we're really just fighting against him the same way we are with others. Fighting against God leads to fighting with them. There's no peace where there are divided allegiances. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. That's it's two options. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. What you value reveals what you worship. And so in verse 5, James asks if we believe the scriptures when they tell us that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell within us. This is an interesting quotation because it's not exactly found anywhere else in the Bible. You can't go to your cross-reference and see exactly where it comes from. It's just a summary statement about what scripture teaches as a whole concerning God's righteous jealousy for his people's worship. James is just doing systematic theology here. The most obvious indirect reference would be to the second commandment. There, God explicitly says that he is a jealous God and pro prohibits worship according to anything but his word. But this quote is also interesting because it could read the way that it does here in the ESV, or it could read something like, 
The spirit God made to dwell in us envies intensely. Okay, so that is the human spirit God breathed into us is now, because of the fall, a powerfully envious one. Regardless of which way you take that, the illness is our spiritual adultery, and the prescription is what verses 6 through 9 are all about. So look there. Up until now, this has been kind of a beatdown, hasn't it? James has cut us deeply. He's humbled us. He's exposed, will, exposed that willful illness in us. But now that we've been humbled, here's where the healing can begin. Here's the good news. Verse 6. You write in your Bible, you should circle this and highlight it and all the things that you do. He gives more grace. More grace than what? More grace than you and I have sin and temptation. God is a kind father and Christ is a jealous husband. We are an adulterous bride and murderous children. But God, we may deserve a scarlet letter. He calls a sweet dove in the cleft of the rock an apple of his eye. What is that? We may be covered in murderous blood, but he washes us whiter than snow. You may explode on your friends. You may fall in and out of loving feelings with your spouse, yell at your kids, even point the finger at God. And you still won't be able to out his grace. If you're trying, you should give that up. He's already proven that he's better than anything that your passions could ever want. And in Christ, he's already proven his love in ways that will pass every one of your silly tests. However, I do have to warn you, if you're here today and you haven't submitted yourself to Christ, then you need to understand that you're still at war with him. There's still blood on your hands. Again, but God, even now, invites you to come to him with your sin-stained hands. He'll cleanse you, forgive you, and give you eternal life. Jesus spilled his own blood so that your hands would be washed of it. Christ sinlessly lived, he died, and he raised from the dead so that sinners like you and me can have peace with God rather than war. And in Christ, enemies become children, sinners become clean, bitter and angry people become instruments of peace and ministers of reconciliation. Slaves to passions become free to enjoy God's good creation without being mastered by it. You can't pay him back for it. You can't out his grace. So if that's you, don't let anything stop you. Don't leave here today without speaking to someone here about that good news. We are happy to spend as much time as you need to go through that. The next thing James does is in verse 6, he quotes the Greek translation of Proverbs 3.34. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The Hebrew Old Testament reads something like, The Lord mocks those who mock, but gives favor to the humble. And so verses 7 through 10 explain to us what humble people do when they've acted like proud mockers. It's time to take the medicine. 
And swallowing the spiritual medicine in verse 7 looks like submission to God. And submission to God means a few things. First, it means, again, verse 7, resisting the temptations, the lies, and the accusations of the devil. What do we say? In your anger, don't sin, which evidently is possible. Like we also said, when you sin in your anger, you give Satan an opportunity, a foothold in your heart. That is, you give him all the leverage that he needs to easily overpower you. That's what bitterness does. There's such a thing as righteous anger, of course, but we need to also be honest about the fact that it's just not the norm for us. We just don't show it very often. For anger to be righteous, it must have at least three things. Number one, your reason must be God's reason for being angry. That is sin and the misery that it causes, which seems to always come with a touch of grief as well, not just this red-hot, explosive desire for justice by itself. Number two, you must have God's view of what is real. That is, insofar as you're able, you aren't making assumptions about things that you can't know, especially when it comes to other people. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord alone searches the heart. And three, a godly response to your anger and everything surrounding it. That is, you display self-control, and your anger is short-lived because you entrust these things to a just God. To fall short in any of those three things immediately perverts your anger. That's why I say it's hard. We don't show it very often. Second, not only is submission to God combating Satan, it's also, verse 8, drawing near to God. These two go hand in hand, don't they? To do one is to do the other. You won't resist Satan if you're not seeking out the Lord. How easy is it when you're angry to get consumed by your day, your agenda, your goals, your duties, your rights, your thoughts, your feelings, your time, whatever. Is that not satanic in a really snake-in-the-garden kind of way? Resist that. You know why? Because you can. Here's why you can. God promises to repel Satan and to commune with us in Christ. In action, your part of that mostly means that you pray, which is what he was talking about earlier that we do so badly. It's the fastest and the most accessible way to God. Of course, it also means going to his word and to his people. He uses those things as well. But nearness to God is never anything but immediately available to you in Christ. Our problem is that sometimes we don't want to come close because we want to hold on to the things that we have against other people. We don't want to give them up. This is the call away from that. Third, submission to God looks like, again, verse 8, repentance. That is changing your mind. Where you previously fell prey to the lies of your flesh and the devil... Call those lies what they are and agree with God. A changed mind will bear what? Changed fruit. 
but one starts before the other. Here James makes use of Old Testament ceremonial imagery when he talks about cleansing and purifying. To cleanse your, or wash one's hands is to repent in action. That is, in this case, ceasing from quarreling and fighting. And to purify one's heart is to repent of sinful motives. In this case, selfish desires. In other words, confess your murder and idolatry. As well as your need for forgiveness and sanctification. And accept God's nearness and grace. And live according to the grace that's been given to you. To do otherwise, James says, is to be double-minded. There's that split allegiance thing again. More literally, it's double-hearted. This is a reference again to those divided allegiances and its characteristics of those who have false faith. Okay? It's characteristic of them. Those who only acknowledge mere agreement with the gospel message the way the demons do, but don't actually trust Jesus. Of course, a double-minded Christian is a spiritual impossibility, and it's unthinkable to the biblical authors. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, James says. And given the gospel, you're a walking contradiction or an imposter if you can honestly be described as a characteristically unmerciful and unforgiving Christian. That's not a thing. I didn't say that you don't ever struggle. I said, if that's characteristic of you, then you need to check your heart. Finally, we can expect from a humble heart that recognizes its need from grace, what? It may come as a surprise to some, but verse 9, a humbled heart is a broken one. That may sound like a bad thing, but it's not. It's godly rather than worldly grief. Godly grief leads to repentance without regret. Worldly grief is sorry it got caught and has to face consequences. What does Jesus say? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And David, the worship God desires is a broken spirit and a contrite heart, which he will never despise. If your grace-driven, chosen posture is one of humility, then James says that your prognosis is fantastic. So verse 10, that prognosis is this, certain exaltation. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled by God. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted by him as well. Exaltation to what? The kind of holiness and peace that comes with being near to God. It can only come that way. In Christ, those who were once far off from God have been brought near by the blood of his Son, for he himself is our peace, who has made us one and broken down in his flesh the division and hostility between us. Union with Christ means communion with one another. So, okay, if you remember the last time I preached the sermon, and you probably remember, if you remember anything about it, that I gave you like a ton of questions at the end. Just a bunch. I actually went back and counted it, something like 57, okay? So, you know, you'll be happy to know that I reduced it down to like 40. I'm kidding. Only six, okay? Six points. We'll be done. First, what do you selfishly desire? What do you selfishly desire? Because you do something. 
Something is your selfish desire. What is it? Here's one way to go deeper with that one if you're struggling. Start with this. What do you love and what do you hate? We know that God loves and hates. What we love, we will hate. What we hate means we have another love. God shows us this, doesn't he? He hates our sin because he loves us. He's angrier about evil than you will ever be. What you cherish is what you defend. And you'll hate anything that comes between you and that thing. So since you're not yet perfect, right? What's your something? Ask yourself. Two, where might you have let the sun go down in your anger? That is, where is there bitterness and resentment in your life? Not just the more recent stuff either. I mean, anything, all of it. You've been alive a while. Bitterness puts down roots. It's like those boxwood trees in all of our front yards that you think are going to be easy to pull up and then you try and it's just way worse, right? It's just not going to happen. Don't let those roots grow any deeper than they already are. Bitter people are miserable people. And for good reason, too. To be bitter is essentially to refuse to trust God with justice, and there is just no peace in that ever. Third, are you a difficult person to approach about this kind of stuff? Like I said, if you're angry, you might have very, very good reasons to be angry. Jesus got angry, righteously, indignant. We don't often think of it this way, but Benjamin Warfield, if you know who that is, wrote about how when Lazarus died, uh, Jesus didn't only weep out of grief, that he must have been enraged by death and what it did to the people there that he loved. It says that three times in John 11, doesn't it? He loved them, he loved them, he loved them. That's a really good reason to be angry, isn't it? So I guess what I'm asking you is this. What do you do with your anger? Being prickly and difficult to approach may be how you protect yourself. It's keeping you distant from grace, and it's really not doing what you think it's doing. You aren't safe that way because you're in there. Fifth, where might you feel undue pressure to make peace with truly dangerous people? Listen, with probably the best of intentions, some of you have heard or been told that making peace is always a non-negotiable regardless of the circumstances. And yes, forgiveness as mercy is non-negotiable. It's between you and God. That is, it's that you not treat others as they deserve for their sins, that you don't return evil for evil. But forgiveness as peacemaking or reconciliation is contingent upon the sinners that are involved, and therefore contingent upon providence as well. Some of you, if you did some of this, if you went to some of these people, you'd be enabling evil and causing very real harm if you approached them about this. Others of you have genuinely done what you can, but you just can't control others or the fact that real sin does real damage to relationships. And sadly, 
some things may not be repaired this side of heaven. And it is sad. We don't want to downplay that. Yes, you should care enough about peace to go outside of your comfort zone. Don't hear me saying anything else. But you're not being asked to play God. Others of you are the person who has hurt others. It haunts you. God has changed you, but the damage was still done. Approaching that may feel terrifying or hopeless, regardless of how badly you want that deep down. None of this, none of it is beyond God's grace and his redemption. And you don't stand or fall based upon your getting this right. We want you to, but that's not your justification. It's not your righteousness. People who can make peace with others, or at least attempt it, are people who know peace between themselves and God already. That is, they trust him in season and out. Okay, finally, sixth. Who do you need to talk to? Who is it? I put it out there, so now you can't ignore it. Sorry. Don't sit on that. The longer you wait, the easier it will be to ignore it. It's like ignoring cancer. Don't do that. If you're offering your sacrifices, your worship, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave and first reconcile with him and come and offer your worship. There's haste about that. Jesus cares a lot about it. Okay. So as you leave today, I'm going to issue you a challenge. Talk to somebody in our congregation about something that came up today in your heart or your mind about this passage. Preferably do that tonight. But if you can't, if that's not possible, schedule something with somebody before you leave this building. I know, I'm being pushy. But I love you. This is going to be some of the hardest stuff to deal with. So don't go it alone, okay? Let's pray.